Well, good afternoon and welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian and I'm happy to be here in studio live streaming from Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship. Our senior pastor here, Scott Richards. That's me. And uh, his faithful protege and all-around great guy. Right hand All-around good guy. Uh, Sean Richards. We're not doing the other thing. The other thing? Not yet, anyway. Oh, yeah. Oh, are we? No. <laughs> no, no. I, that I that ship has sailed. No. <laughs> I mean, you you miss out a lot if you don't yeah. uh, like log on early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. For those of you who are uh, joining us online and uh, watching the live stream live, and uh, so this is a reason for hope. This is a Bible answer program where we take live questions from our live stream audience every weekday, five to six p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Questions about the Bible, the Christian worldview. Uh, compared to religions, uh, how do we know truth? Um, you know, all kinds of questions that we get that pertain to uh, the the fundamental questions about life, our origins, our <clears throat> uh, the meaning and value of our lives, and where does life go from here? Where, does life end in the grave, or is there something beyond? Uh, so some fundamental questions. If you're even a, a, a Christian who just wants to know how to apply a specific passage or maybe understand, have a little clarity on a specific passage of scripture, ask away. Please join us. <clears throat> there are really no questions that are out of off limits. As long as it's sincere and pertaining to the Christian faith, then we would love to take your questions. And you can do so by, of course, joining us uh, multiple different ways. You can just email us directly at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, no numbers. Uh, <clears throat> all letters uh, at gmail.com. You can also join us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com, search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or you can go straight to our page, which is facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson. You can also join us on YouTube. You can search for A Reason for Hope. That's our YouTube channel. And uh, you can also go direct, which is youtube.com forward slash the at symbol. Reason for Hope, or A Reason for Hope 546. We also uh, live stream to our website. So if you want to avoid social media platforms altogether, you can just go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, click that Watch Live tab, and, uh, and check it out there. <clears throat> we also have a uh, Christmas Eve service. So uh, I would encourage you to join us if you are in the Tucson area and you'd like to join us. We have our new service schedule starting this Sunday. So our morning services from here on out will be 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. each Sunday morning. And this Sunday, we're having a Christmas Eve service at 6 p.m. So I'd encourage you to join us for that. Also, we have um, an app that you can download from the Google or Apple Play Store. And uh, this app allows you to uh, watch all of our live streams as well as uh, watch an archive or listen to an archive of over 20 years of, of messages. You can do the same at our website, of course. It also allows you to have a nifty digital Bible and join and create chat groups, all sorts of things. We also have a channel that you can add if you have an Amazon Fire product or a Roku smart device you can add our channel to those devices and you can watch all of our live streams. So I'd encourage you to download that if you haven't had the chance. Also follow our senior pastor on the X platform, formerly Twitter, and you can do so by uh, typing in his handle and following him at Scott 
R4H. That's at Scott R4H. And if you want to leave a question for us on this program, you can do so there. You can just tweet it out. Or uh, if you want to just uh, follow Pastor Scott on his updates, I'd encourage you to do so. With that said, we'll take a moment to pray, and we'll get to your questions. Let's do it. Would you like to pray for us? Okay. Yeah. And thank you that we have the chance to be here. We would invite you to be here as well, to speak your word and make it clear to those who are listening. We're first in line, and we're honored by that prospect. We don't want to share anything if it's not a gift from your hands. We ask for your spirit. We ask that your people's ears would be open, that our hearts would be receptive to not only be sensitive to what's being asked, but the heart behind the questions. You're the only one who knows both, so allow your people to be ministered to today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, well, a few updates. Uh, we'll just jump into those so we can have uh, maximum time for our questions. Uh, fascinating uh, article on uh, the townhall.com website. Katie Pavlich uh, posted this article. It says, speaking to his country in the world Wednesday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu issued a choice to Iranian-backed terrorist organization Hamas, surrender or die. Those are your options. Uh, Netanyahu said, we will continue the war until the end, until the elimination of Hamas, until victory. Those who think we will stop are not connected to reality. All Hamas terrorists from the first to the last are mortal. They have only two options, surrender or die. Now, the reason that I think this is such a significant uh, article and a statement that I wanted to highlight for you all is that yesterday on this program, we highlighted the fact that uh, the United States seemed to be sending uh, one envoy after another with the express purpose of saying to Israel, uh, you need to back off on all of this. You need to do less than just eliminate Hamas, uh, maybe take out some of their leaders, some of their infrastructure, and then declare victory and kind of let them go about their business. Um, so very confusing mixed set of signals. Uh, our president said some things that could have been interpreted a couple of different ways. Uh, but uh, interestingly, uh, our, our uh, Secretary of State Blinken responded to Benjamin Netanyahu's remarks uh, in this way. This is uh, from the Israel War Room uh, website, uh, also available on X if you want to follow them there. Uh, he posted, no one is demanding that Hamas stop hiding behind citizens, lay down its arms, and surrender. This is over tomorrow if Hamas does that. How can it be that there are no demands made of the aggressor and only demands made of the victim? Well, uh, again, uh, Israel offered Hamas another temporary pause in the fighting in exchange for another prisoner release, but the deal was rejected by the terrorist organization. They still hold over 150 people, as far as we know, still alive, including a number of Americans in the uh, Gaza Strip. Uh, so nearly three months into the world, the war, uh, Hamas uh, basically took that uh, olive branch and responded by uh, launching a fusillade of rockets uh, right at Tel Aviv. Uh, most were taken out, but some apparently hit the ground with some damage. We're also seeing in the north of Israel an attack from Hezbollah, the uh, Iranian-backed uh, terrorist organization in uh, Lebanon uh, that, uh, in fact, hit uh, a number of cities and uh, some uh, pretty uh, graphic pictures of the damage those rockets uh, did when they got past the Iron Dome defensive system. So uh, the Iron Dome is not foolproof. In fact, uh, the growing consensus is that if Hezbollah attacked Israel from 
uh, the North, uh, their strategy would be, because they have over a quarter of a million rockets wow. at their disposal, uh, to over, overwhelm the system, just fire so many rockets, so many rockets, so many rockets. Pretty soon you run out of Iron Dome rockets, and then the rest can kind of have their way. So um, not uh, a bad strategy, unless, of course, uh, we take into account some cryptic statements that uh, the IDF and the Sheen Bait have uh, made saying that if uh, Hezbollah tried to do something like that, uh, we would unleash a weapon they've never seen before, and they wouldn't like it if we did. Whoa. So I don't know if that's saber-rattling, but apparently it works because Hezbollah hasn't tried to overwhelm Israel's defenses with their vast superiority of a uh, number of rockets. Uh, so maybe they're trying to figure out if that's bluff or bluster. EMP or, uh, yeah. technology? I, I don't, who knows? Who knows? But uh, Given what we know about Israel and the technology sector... I wouldn't gamble. I would. I wouldn't yeah. mess around with them. So long before any possibility of Iron Dome going depleting, there's they're basically hinting that there will be an offensive move if they were to attack. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, there have been uh, statements made about Israel perfecting a uh, laser lasers uh, version of uh, the Iron Dome defense system, which would not require reloading. Mm. And also <clears throat> less dependence on us to supply them with the ammunition, yeah. mm. which is a very good thing. Yeah, so they've already made statements. The IDF has made statements a few months ago saying that uh, this uh, particular system is beyond trials and is ready to be implemented. Wow. Um, and then it kind of sort of died off a little bit. So maybe that's what they're referring to. Maybe it's some kind of EMP uh, technology. Mm. I remember when the neutron bomb came out, it was a, a bomb that would just uh, radiate a place without destroying the infrastructure, destroy all the people, but keep the structure intact. Uh, maybe this is the EMP version mm. of that. We don't know, but uh, I don't <clears throat> think I would uh, monkey around with that. Another interesting development, uh, the uh, big question is, okay, uh, Israel gets done wiping out Hamas. You still have all these Palestinians there. You can't tell if a Palestinian in Gaza is a terrorist or not. Do you just leave him there and make everybody promise to be good? Or what do you do with this population base? Well, uh, presidential candidate Nikki Haley had a very interesting uh, suggestion. She is a former ambassador to the United Nations. Interviewed on NBC News, she suggested that uh, the people that would take the Palestinians, by the way, Egypt absolutely refuses. Uh, they will not take any of the Palestinians. In fact, they said that if uh, Israel <coughs> attempted to facilitate uh, the Palestinians crossing into Egypt, that Egypt would abrogate their peace treaty and declare war on Israel. That's Whoa. how hardcore they do not want the Palestinians there, with good reason. Wherever the Palestinians, quote-unquote, have gone, uh, mayhem has followed. But isn't that border maintained <coughs> by Egypt? I mean, it's really... Well, to... Egypt and Israel basically oh, okay. guard, so it's a... guard that. So uh, the, the bottom line is this. Uh, Nikki Haley had an interesting suggestion. Well, Egypt doesn't want the Palestinians. Jordan certainly doesn't want the Palestinians. Uh, well, then uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't want the, the Palestinians. How about the people that have been supplying weapons to the Palestinians. If they love the Palestinian cause so much, uh, why don't the Iranians 
for instance, offer to take them in. They've got plenty of space in Iran for them to set up shop. Uh, why don't the Turks in, uh, invite them in? Uh, I'm sure uh, Prime Minister Erdogan uh, could find some place for the Palestinians there. Uh, suddenly there's a lot of backtracking and hemming and hawing. And, but uh, the interesting thing Nikki Haley pointed out uh, was that whenever this discussion comes up, uh, the UN, the EU, the usual suspects all say the same thing. Well, it's up to the United States and Israel to determine what the end game is going to be. Uh, I think this is a refreshing new idea. Why should it be on us and Israel? Why not uh, have the Palestinians' allies take care of them and mm. uh, manage to uh, uh, sail them off on luxury boats and land in Turkey or on the coast of Iran and uh, problem solved? I, I don't think that's ever going to happen because, again, the cynicism behind all of this, and it just makes you feel uh, so sorry for the average Palestinian person, is that uh, nobody really wants to solve the Palestinian problem. They want to keep the Palestinian problem around as a justification for terrorist acts against the Jews, mm. which is the end game uh, as far as they're concerned. Uh, remember what this uh, murderous endeavor was called by the Palestinians when it started. Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. What is mm. Al-Aqsa? It's the reference to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which literally translates as the center. Uh, it is falsely attributed to be the uh, Masjid al-Haram, the furthermost mosque that's referenced in the Quran, the real ones in Saudi Arabia. But noting the fact that there would not have been a mosque built at the time Muhammad supposedly had his Mirage vision, where he mounted uh, Mrs. Watsit from A Wrinkle in Time and traveled to uh, essentially a ripoff of Abraham's uh, bartering deal with mm -hmm. God and trying to figure out how many times Muslims ought to pray. The doctrine behind it is essentially that, and this is the actual reason, uh, wherever Muslims conquer, the success of their conquests and their ability to hold those lands is proof of their religion. The geopolitics and the spiritual aspect are not distinguished. It's one and the same. So if we're talking to the sincere Muslim who's looking at their dominion over, well, what used to be the Ottoman Empire and seeing it divided up by the British, they're seeing more of an argument against the truthfulness of Islam than any argument against the Quran's incoherence, the internal and external contradictions, the borrowings, the plagiarisms, the outright fallacies and false information that are made within the divine text itself. They don't care because the Quran's not meant for doctrine, it's meant for recitation. That's what Quran means. And if they recite it enough in Arabic, they get more good deeds to balance out their bad, which ultimately will just play into them being predestined for heaven and hell anyway. It's very depressing. But when you're looking at Al-Aqsa, you're looking at one monument of many where they build it over the spiritual sites of any nation that they conquer. You see this in the Hindu shrines in India. You see this in the Christian shrines like the Hagia Sophia in Turkey. And of course, you see it in Jerusalem. They built it over Solomon's temple, not because it was there, but because it is no longer a place of Jewish worship. It is now Muslim conquered lands. For the Hebrews to re-visit 
let alone uh, dwell in that place in a position of authority, is the equivalent of blasphemy to a Christian or a Hebrew, and that's the point. So their desire to drive the Hebrews out from whence they were driven out isn't because the Jews ever drove them out, but because in reference to the Quran, they have to present themselves in a victim-like status in order to make this center one that is purely Muslim, following what Muhammad said in History of Al-Tabri, Volume 6, that I will expel the Jews from the Arabian Peninsula and not leave any except Muslims. So if that is in fact the goal, and it is a militaristic one as much as a spiritual one, one, then the ideas are what need to be combated. The Al-Aqsa claim is a false one, and Saudi Arabia may eventually have the opportunity to make bank on withdrawing from Israel, and that was potentially where they were headed diplomacy-wise before the Al-Aqsa flood. But the point is, when you're talking to these individuals, there are nominal Muslims who wouldn't know their Quran from a phone book, and the latter would be more coherent. There are uh, I guess sincere Muslims who know their Quran but understand it's not the time for conquest until they have a caliphate. That is why the recruitment for ISIS was so poignant worldwide. They thought that that was in fact their call. And of course there are actual Muslims who are willing to submit to all that Muhammad has commanded, including but not limited to, to strike fear into the enemies of Allah, to strike the necks of the non-believers, to kill the non-believers wherever you find them. So when it comes to this Al-Aqsa concern, the Temple Mount concern, the Hebrew question is not the same question that was being asked of in Nazi Germany in the 30s. The question is, why doesn't Islam work for us? And when they look at Al-Aqsa, when they look at any other place where Islam's influence is being contested, not just not dominating, but contested in any way, they have to ask themselves the question, is Islam wrong? No, because if I even entertain that thought, my family and my community are going to behead me, or at least shun me. Well, it can't be that, because I can't think in those terms. Is it because we aren't being Muslim enough? Which is why you see, after the Al-Aqsa flood, an emboldenedness of worldwide jihad activities, in particular in France, but across the world, Sweden, Germany, um, Switzerland and others as well, from what I was able to read today, at least nine attacks in the last 12 hours. Yeah. But the point being made is just that. They have a dilemma. They have to either acknowledge that their approach towards spirituality is false, or they have to say their approach towards spirituality is being reflected in their losses. So if they take Al-Aqsa back, that's proof that Islam is true. But if it remains contested, or at least given to them by goodwill of the Hebrews that do have right to their land, even according to the Quran, then they have to decide, well, do we continue these pursuits and follow Muhammad's example and commands? Do we throw in the towel, Allah Psalm 83, we're hoping, or do they just bide their time and wait for a spiritual leader? And the sad part is, just like with the IDF soldiers who can't distinguish between a Palestinian, a uh, Hamas agent, or a Hezbollah agent waiting for orders, we can't tell the difference. So instead of fighting a ideolo or an ideological war with bombs and bullets, 
which they have right to do to defend their borders, but it's not going to solve the actual issue. The ideology is what's motivating them. These people need the gospel. So as they look to the center for answers, they look to their history and their military prowess for answers and find it wanting, this is the perfect opportunity that when they see they're losing momentum and strength in striking terror into the hearts of the uh, infidels, then you have the opportunity to say, well, instead of a God who's not big enough of a boy to stand up for himself, how about a God who is willing to lay down his life for you? And the arguments that are going to follow, like clockwork, are not difficult to answer. I'd recommend plenty of resources and encourage prayer for them because they take a lot of flack for it as well. But that's how you know you're over the target. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if... Because the Israelis are always called occupiers, um, <laughs> uh, apartheid, oppressors, colonizers, for allowing that mosque to stand since May 14th, 1948, is a testament to the fact that none of those accusations are true. Not to mention what happened in 1967 when the Muslims fully expected the Israel, uh, the, the IDF. Uh, once they took East Jerusalem in the Six-Day War to bulldoze both of the shrines. They fully expected that to happen, but Moshe Dayan, who was the head of the IDF, offered an olive branch to the Arabs and said, this will show them that we're sincere, that we're not a threat to them. Mm. We will allow them to continue to have their shrines. In fact, we're going to go the extra mile and put the administration of the Temple Mount in the hands of the Jordanian government uh, by an organization called the Waqfa. And boy, the Waqfa are not real pleasant people to be around. We've had some experience with them in our trips uh, to Israel. Mistakes of history are being repeated. Same thing happened at Kaibar, and guess what happened to them? But uh, the the bottom line is, what more could you possibly say to this? It it reminds me of the famous quote from uh, Golda Meir. Uh, If uh, the Arabs laid down their weapons, there would be peace in the Middle East. If the Jews laid down their weapons, there would be no more Jews in the Middle East. Uh, that it's just hard to get around the Islamic uh, imperative that uh, the duty of these Islamic nations that mm. they take their Quran seriously and their Hadiths is to destroy the Jews, to destroy anyone who's an occupier. It's laughable to me that the Jews mm-hmm. would be called colonists, especially since they are on a piece of territory that was previously colonized by the Ottoman Empire. And... <laughs> The Umayyad Caliphate before them and Muhammad and his companions before that. That's literally how they determine the truth of Islam, that they're colonizing everywhere they go. So So, Allah is true if we conquer and colonize. And colonize. (laughs) So (laughs) eliminate their culture and bring them under a status called dimitude. But uh, once again, almost like Anthony Blinken's uh, remark, nobody seems to be asking these questions of the Muslims. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're saying the Jews are colonists, but what are you? Yeah, right. Um, you know, were any of those individuals in Gaza, native to Gaza? No, they're all uh, Jordanians and Syrians, essentially and, squatters, and Egyptians. <laughs> uh, they didn't buy the land. Yeah, exactly. Like so, the Hebrews. So, I mean, we could uh, we could hmm. basically get into all of that. I guess if you really wanted to accuse the Jews of being colonizers, you'd have to go back to the time of Joshua when they came in and kicked out the Canaanites. After eight hundred or four hundred years of warnings, years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, well, thank you for that. Uh, it's sad to see on the news the last day or so about um, 
you know, one of the rape victims on the October 7th and then people yelling, uh, you know, Americans yelling at them shame and saying yeah. anti-Semitic remarks to the victim. I mean, this isn't an IDF soldier. This is a so rape victim. So much for Me Too. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I think Me Too it's, died a uh, long time ago. The, but, uh, it died that, before that it delusion. started. Yeah, yeah that but, delusion. Is uh, the only other uh, detail prophetically some people have asked about uh, what's going on uh, with Donald Trump uh, being taken off the ballot in Colorado, uh, the Supreme Court of Colorado coming to decision that uh, because Trump had committed an insurrection against the United States, uh, provision of the 14th Amendment, which prohibited Confederate soldiers and Confederate officials from serving in political uh, roles in the United States, applies to him. Well, you know, this is already being appealed in the Supreme Court, in which case I think it will last probably about 30 seconds mm -hmm. before it's thrown out. Um, the uh, response, I think, that uh, is uh, to be anticipated here is that uh, the Colorado Republican Party just said, well, it's, our, it's for the primary, but here's what we'll do. We won't have a primary. We'll just have a caucus where the Republicans get together and internally vote on this sort of thing. Uh, it seems to be an idea whose time has come. There are 14 other states that are considering doing the same thing, although the state of Texas is considering uh, their uh, uh, district, their uh, attorney general, I should say, is uh, considering throwing Joe Biden off the ballot for some other reason. So uh, what, it, what does this have to do with the price of tea in China, China and Taiwan? We talked a little bit of that yesterday. But uh, one of the things I think we see, and we've talked about this on the broadcast, is that if we are going to be moving towards a one world government, uh, which is the uh, espoused goal of people like Klaus Schwab and the, boy, that guy just strikes me like a central casting James Bond villain if you've ever seen one. But uh, that whole crew that gets together there in Davos and thinks great thoughts and wants to have this global socialist uh, government, uh, the main thing standing in the way of that, of course, is the United States. And if you can eliminate the United States or lower the United States down to the level of other nations, then uh, the idea of a one world government, which is a very prophetic thing, uh, becomes more and more possible at that point. How do you lower the United States? Well, I think uh, it doesn't take a genius to look at the fact that uh, through media, through government, through uh, a number of different avenues, there has almost been a systematic under, uh, well, undermining of the pillars of confidence in our society. Uh, you know, as far as uh, one of the most important is the idea that we are a participatory form of uh, democracy, a Republican form of government where we vote and elect our officials. Well, if you can eliminate uh, the confidence of people where they're just going, well, why should I even bother to vote? Uh, you know, it's all rigged. Uh, it's, it's, you know, my, my vote doesn't even really matter. I'm not even going to be able to vote for the candidate I want to vote for uh, and all of this. Well, once again, another major pillar of confidence in the United States gets uh, knocked uh, asunder. The various political scandals that go on, uh, the fact that uh, most people believe that politi politicians on both sides of the aisle are just uh, after their own interests, uh, finding out, uh, for instance, that a, a Republican congressman in Texas, only been in office, oh gosh, about four or five years, uh, went from having a net worth of under $200,000 to now he's worth uh, about $15 million. Uh, you know, uh, the, the idea that, uh, that uh, there's no checks or balances on uh, congressmen knowing about certain legislation that's going to benefit certain 
uh, you know, companies and so on, and investing in the stock market and so on. We could all go into all that. But I do think that there is a systematic effort and attempt to lower the confidence in the United States, uh, lower confidence in uh, our government to be able to conduct even basic services in the United States, like protecting the border. Uh, you know, when people lose confidence in the government, when anarchy begins to rise, well, we learn a lesson from the Weimar Republic in Germany. That's exactly what happened. Very weak government. Uh, inflation started going out of control. People were saying, we need someone who's going to bring in law and order. And lo and behold, a guy named Adolf Hitler says, me, me, me. Uh, that's how dictators come to power. And uh, the Bible does say there is going to be a last day's world dominating dictator named the Antichrist. I don't believe he will be able to reveal himself as, as such, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, until the one who restrains is taken out of the way. I believe that is the special work of the Holy Spirit through the church. Uh, Jesus said, you are the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. Light keeps darkness at bay. Salt is an important preservative that keeps something from rotting out. Well, as soon as we're removed, then the Antichrist can reveal himself as such. And in the chaos, uh, economically, militarily, governmentally, societally, that is going to happen in the aftermath of the rapture, this guy is going to say, yeah, you guys have done a good job greasing the skids. We can use a lot of this to kind of get us where we need to go, um, but I'm going to run the show. And it's going to take that kind of satanic uh, inspiration, that kind of satanic power, that level of deceptiveness to be able to pull it off. That won't happen prior to the rapture. But boy, once the rapture takes place, the salt and light is gone, uh, Katie bar the door. So I think this is another example of moving in that particular direction. The United States, uh, as it sits right now, is the biggest obstacle to a one world uh, government that is out there. Maybe China would need some prodding in that direction, but probably not as much. Uh, you know, the, I think that's in essence what we're seeing there. And, and I think that's the only really prophetic implication mm. involved with all of that. And uh, why so, would we expect it in our lifetimes as opposed to in World War II, as opposed to the unifications under Charlemagne, under all of these other times in history where this figure could have united these kingdoms? Israel's back in the land. And happened before. So we have good reason to believe that today should be lived as if it's our last, like the Lord told us mm. to. Yeah, right on. Uh, Alfonso asked a question on our website live stream. Was it a sin when David took the shofar bread? Oh boy, that's shofar a, bread. <coughs> shofar that's the, means that's, that's the shoe bread, the uh, show bread. The show bread, as yeah, it is uh, called. For, dictionary terms for those listening. Shofar is a ram's horn. That's uh, how Israel would communicate their uh, movings and wanderings to the wilderness and declaration of certain festivals. In the tabernacle and later in the temple, there were three special uh, pieces of furniture in the holy place where only the priests could go. There was the Ark of the Covenant, which was essentially the throne room of God. It was the manifestation of the Father, in a sense. We have the menorah, the uh, seven-pronged lamp stand that would Catalog, provide right? light yeah. inside of the tabernacle and ultimately the temple that was a representation of the Spirit, as we see in Revelation 5. And then, of course, we had the table of showbread, which was, of course, uh, not just like the menorah, not just like the Ark of the Covenant covered in gold leaf, it would be a representation of God, but it would be a place where, a la Revelation 3.20, the Lord would eat with his people. And it was actually a really interesting thing. It looks kind of like a, you know, uh, 
uh, vending machine without the glass. It's got all these pulleys and stuff. And uh, when it says like bread loaves, we're not talking like little Costco things. These things were massive. Yeah. And there's even uh, Hebrew traditions, whether they're true or not, we can leave up to later confirmation. But whenever they would prepare them, they would stay perpetually hot uh, the entire week that they'd be set out for just basically being there in the temple. And then after a week, the priest would be able to eat it and it would still be fresh. Now, I don't know, but the point of emphasis was that was a representation of the sun and none of these three items were to be handled lightly. For example, speaking of light, the menorah had a special oil associated with it that was illegal, not just forbidden, right. but illegal, penalized, to be used anywhere else outside of the temple. The Ark of the Covenant self-explanatory, just ask uh, David and his friend. But the table of showbread had similar principles. If you read Exodus 19 and other passages in Leviticus, they make a special note in saying that this bread's only for the priests. That was the law. And if they were to understand that, then take it seriously, that it would be treated with the same reverence. And by the way, it was handled the same way as the menorah and the Ark of the Covenant. They weren't to touch the table of showbread. They were to put sticks through it and carry it just like the others. Right. So this representation of the Son alongside the Spirit and the Father were there in the temple. Now, you ask the question, and that's in uh, 1 Samuel 21, I believe. Yeah, verses 1 through 6, yeah. Where David, uh, well had an emergency. Yeah. Uh, he was fleeing from Saul. He and his men were literally hypoglycemic. And so they came to the tabernacle. Uh, David asked the priest there, a fellow by the name of Ahimelech, uh, you know, if they had food. And he said, the only food we've got is the showbread. Yeah, no common bread. We right. have this sanctified bread. Right. Special priests only bread. Right. And so... Uh, David, again, appeals to that, despite the fact that it was reserved for the sons of Aaron only to eat, according to Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 9, if you're keeping score at home. Uh, the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence. How interesting to be called the bread of the presence, re referring to the son, that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Well, David's eating of this bread um, is problematic. Uh, he also uh, passed himself off in this set of circumstances as just being on an errand for Saul, not being on the lamb running away from Saul, which definitely would uh, affect how Ahimelech uh, would respond uh, to him. Uh, so, you know, where this gets even more complicated is uh, in the book of uh, Matthew, chapter 12. Jesus' disciples are on the Sabbath going through a field. They're breaking off some of the heads of grain, rubbing them together, and it was kind of a way to make an impromptu sort of granola snack. Yeah. Uh, very common thing to do. Uh, you ate this, you chew it up, you could almost chew it like chewing gum, you know, after a while. Uh, but it would satisfy your hunger while you were traveling uh, from place to place. Well, the Pharisees, the sin sniffers, the propriety police, saw them doing this and said, why do your followers do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And yeah, note the two things there. They were taking from grain that was available. That didn't mean they were stealing from the crops. They were required by law to leave the corners of the field ungathered so that these people would have the opportunity to take it. Also, they weren't gathering the grain in order to sell it, Yeah, which would also be violating, a clear violation of the Sabbath. They weren't saying, hey, we're gonna have the uh, 
Peter, James, and John Wonder Bread uh, Company. We're going to put this together and sell it to the crowds who follow us. Yeah, no miracle wheat. Um, yeah. But the funny, that's a reference. Uh, so in this situation, their beef with it was you're not supposed to rub the grain on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do these sort you're of You're working. Things. Yes, and that was the crux of it. They were not quoting Leviticus. They weren't even quoting First Samuel. They were quoting their traditions. Right. And that's when Jesus called them on the carpet and literally pulled rank. Yeah, he said, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. Now notice Jesus says, David is not doing something lawful here. Actual law. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, he was not being lawful on two fronts. First of all, that bread was not supposed to be eaten uh, by anybody but Levites. Clearly, we see that in Leviticus 21 and other passages along that line. Secondly, he was lying to Ahimelech as to why he had a need in the first place. A blunder right up there with touching the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. He could have been struck dead for this, yet for some reason, the one who had rights to condemn David didn't. Yeah. Why? So he says, it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. He doesn't dis Jesus doesn't dispute that, doesn't dispute the fact that David had violated the law in that time. And uh, if you think that David was a man after God's own heart because he never made a mistake or never sinned, uh, you don't know the life of David. One of the questions we often get on this broadcast is, how can you call David a man after God's own heart when he does this and he does that and he does the other? Well, David was a human being through and through, but it's not uh, that we blow it that tells the story. It's the brokenness of heart after we blow it that uh, really ends up revealing the heart of the individual. And yeah. if you don't think David was sorry about his sins, uh, read Psalm 32, read Psalm 51. Uh, God wasn't easy on David uh, when he broke his uh, broke uh, God's commands and, and was in rebellion against him. Yeah. So He wasn't a man after God's own character. Jesus doesn't justify, well, he's David, he always got it right. No, he says it wasn't lawful for him to do. Or have you not read in the law uh, that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profaned the Sabbath and are blameless? How do they profane the Sabbath? Well, it's because if someone comes on the Sabbath day to the priests in the temple and says, uh, you know, I sinned with a high hand against God and I've got this uh, ox I want to sacrifice as a sin offering, can you do it for me? They would do it. That is working and you're working on the Sabbath. Which was the topic, which yeah. was the actual issue. Yeah, and, and uh, again, uh, <laughs> Jesus uh, says, look, you sin sniffers, you propriety police, you nitpickers, you know, it's the old thing. You point the finger, you got three pointing back at you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I guess, or Ark of the Covenant, Menorah, and Showbread pointing back at them. And he said, yet I say to you, now this really ups the ante, that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Whoa. I think this uh, qualitatively eliminates Jesus from the one of many good teachers categories because uh, to say that, to say that you're greater than the temple, uh, there's only one that was greater than the temple and that was God The one that made the temple himself. what it was. Yeah. He says, but if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Again, this is a quote from Hosea chapter six and verse six. You would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is Lord 
even of the Sabbath. So what Jesus has said, in essence, is this. You're out Bibling the Bible, guys. Uh, the Bible never said you couldn't meet your needs on the Sabbath day. In fact, in the parallel account, he even goes into details about which one of you, if you have you know, an ox that falls in a ditch, you go and rescue. You don't wait till after the Sabbath to do that, and you're blameless. Uh, you, you think oxen are more important than human beings? Uh, you know, and, and so even by their own practices, they're being exposed, not as individuals that were concerned about purity and truth. They were concerned about gotchas. They really felt like they had Jesus there. We got him now. We, we, we've got him in, in a sin. But notice what Jesus goes on to say. He said, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, the Sabbath day was one of the commandments, and being Lord over it was saying he was not only an authority over it, but the authority over it. He was the one who gave it. And Literally, it was are, his finger that wrote it on the rock and gave it to Moses. Yeah, it was on his authority that those laws were binding. So Jesus is claiming not only moral authority here, but divine authority here. The one that they got their laws from wasn't their founding father, Abraham. It was the God who led them out of the wilderness. So the point being made is this. When he makes the point of blaming the guiltless in this setting, Jesus recognizes guilt on David's part. And this is the answer to your question, Alfonso. Yes, it was, quote unquote, sinful, and that it was a violation of God's law. But the reason why David wasn't struck dead is because the judge of all the earth is going to do what was right. He knows that there's more to nuance than the letter of the law. He knows how to handle these cases on a person-by-person -person basis. When people are in court, legitimately, and they ask questions like, why did you cut open that woman's abdomen on that table? She was giving birth and I had to perform a C-section. Oh, context matters. Yeah. If David was running for his life <laughs> yeah. from an illegitimate ruler, God had taken the kingdom away from him, was trying to kill him as God's anointed. He was running for his life and had to make a difficult decision. God's not going to go, well, you know, David, I was going to make you a part of my messianic line, but you really blew it there with eating those, uh, um, what was the brand of Wonder Bread? Uh, the uh, the showbread? No, I'm, I'm just oh. uh, trying to make a pop culture yeah. reference, yeah. but I missed the timing. Bill's point 12 body, or strong bodies, 12 ways. Yes, so the point being made is I'm that, remember that God knows the difference between violating the letter of the law and the character of the law. How could he know the difference? He wrote it. He's the law giver. He is also the one who searches the heart. And that's And the understands point. why people do what they do. Yeah. Now, was David justified in that? No, Jesus said, you've acted lawlessly. Uh, could David be forgiven for that? Yeah, uh, he, he was forgiven for that. And I mean, to confirm this, um, the, uh, the interesting thing is after this incident, they have the show ready because you have a sword around here. Oh yeah, we got Goliath's sword around here. He gets the sword from Ahimelech, and what happens when Saul catches up? He murders him and all the priests in the area. Yeah, sends this guy Doeg the Edomite to do his dirty work for him. Yeah. So, you know, once again, expediency, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the idea of just doing something because it works uh, doesn't necessarily win the day, and that's why... Jesus was careful to say that this was a lawless deed, but you guys 
also commit lawless deeds. So let's get back to making granola snacks here. It isn't about the show bread. It's about them doing something that's completely lawful on the Sabbath day. And it was a like and like situation. The goal wasn't to violate the law. David's like, hey, I know what we can do. Why don't we steal the pre show bread? No, it was no hidden cameras, no pranks. It was what? preservation of life. These guys were starving. They had a long journey ahead, and it was because of desperation God said, hey, I get it. And that's the point of having a good judge. He's not just going to say, well, then you shouldn't have, you should have thought of that beforehand. I'm striking you dead, David. That's the, not the point. And, and you know what else is fascinating here, Alfonso? The next incident recorded in the book of Matthew is Jesus going to the synagogue where the man with the withered hand was. Mm -hmm. And the Pharisees were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to them, uh, what man is there among you if he has one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. In other words, you, you can you know, talk even about being God, but as soon as you touch our steel-reinforced spiritual sensibilities, we're going to kill you. Yeah, and that's what religion always does. It always uh, brings slavery and bondage and death to people. And uh, Jesus came to set us free from these things. That's why he said, uh, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden. Why were they weary and heavy laden? Because they'd had the Pharisees put loads on their back and didn't lift a finger to help them. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden's light. Uh, it was the complete opposite of the rigid religiosity of the Pharisees. And boy, one of the things that's really scary to me in these last days is that rigid religiosity seems to be making a tremendous comeback. Uh, don't be a Pharisee. They don't really come across well in the ministry of Jesus. Study the life of Jesus, study his teaching, study how he related to people, and make that your compass heading. And I don't think you're going to go wrong. Well, thanks for the question, Alfonso. And <clears throat> again, that's showbread, not shofar in your question. Uh, but there is such a thing as a shofar horn. So yeah. thanks for the clarification there. Uh, we had a question on Twitter, I'm sorry, from Facebook, from Robert, wanting to know uh, something about 1 Timothy 4.2. And uh, the question was, I understand why it mentions hypocrisy, but I'm not quite understanding the combination of the words quote, speaking lies in hypocrisy. Could you please help get some understanding of this? Yeah, it's uh, finish the, the verse. It says, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. If you've ever had a burn wound or something, you know that the long-term consequences of anything above a second degree is that it deadens the nerves. You, you don't have any feeling there anymore, or at least if you do, it means that you nick something important. Now, in this situation, the conscience, the awareness of yourself, especially in terms of guilt, is speaking in contrast to someone who's speaking lies 
in hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy, we tend to refer to it exclusively as a moral or reputation term. But believe it or not, it was a theater term. It means one who wears a mask. Right. And if you were supposed to express joy, you'd wear the smiley face. If you were supposed to express tragedy, be the frowny face, comedy, tragedy, the two sides of all communication and art. So when we're talking about a hypocrite, we're talking about someone who's putting an image on that they aren't. And in this context, it would parallel well with what he's talking about, the false teachers that are giving forward doctrines of demons, right? Right. So they're false teachers, but they, a la Matthew chapter 7, look like sheep, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's the idea of the hypocrite. Now, if we combine that with speaking lies in that masked state, it's essentially saying that false teachers are going to false. They're going to share false doctrine because they're false people. What you are and what you're saying, there is a distinction in noun and verb. Yeah, I would agree with that. Boom. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Talon had a question on our YouTube channel. Sorry, Talon, I was trying to highlight your question to post it on our question feed that we use here internally, and I accidentally hit the extract button. So I apologize for that. But I did read your question, and I will try to repeat it from based on memory. Uh, the show The Chosen, when you were speaking about the show Bread in that instance, dramatized that and Jesus saying that man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. First, what do you think of the show The Chosen, and what does that mean? Sabbath was not made, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. Well, let's start with the second first. Yeah, let's uh, stick to the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, once again, the, what was the point of having a Sabbath day? Did God want it to be some onerous, uh, overbearing, uh, you know, unmanageable sort of a thing where people had to walk on eggshells lest they be struck by lightning? No. But what happened down through time? Well, you got to understand a little of the history here. Uh, if you're with us, for instance, in our study of the book of Ezekiel, Uh, on Wednesday nights. You know that Israel at the time of Ezekiel was uh, definitely taking it heavy because they had abandoned the truth of God and had worshiped idols. Uh, They had uh, decided uh, that uh, more religion was better and so they had the temple of God but they also had the temple of Moloch and they didn't see any distinction between offering say a child as a sacrifice and then going up to the temple and straightening their halos and talking about Yahweh all day long. Well, God wasn't going to have it, and uh, the temple was destroyed. The hypocrisy of uh, the people of that day, especially the priests and the false prophets, was utterly and totally exposed. Uh, The vast majority of uh, the Jews were sent into exile in Babylon, where they stayed for 70 years. God basically said, if you like idols, uh, boy, I'm going to send you to where they invented idols. You're going to have more idols, you know what to do with. So uh, after that 70 years and after returning, the Jews got the message. Did they ever have a problem with idolatry after that? Not in that way. Not in that way. Uh, so uh, the, the, the bottom line was this. Uh, they saw that their forefathers had forsaken God's law, and that's why they got sent into captivity. And so, you know, Ezra, in the book of Ezra, stands up and explains the word. And, you know, we see in Nehemiah chapter 12, you know, the amazing uh, gathering that happened there. And, and Nehemiah chapter 8, I should say. And, uh, and the, that, uh, you know, uh, Ezra proclaimed the word and the, the priests explained the meaning and all this stuff. And the people received back their spiritual inheritance, all to the good. But uh, they, they promised, swore up and down, they would never violate the law ever again. So... 
that was the good news. The good, the bad news was they started looking at the law, and I mean, let's just start with Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and started saying, "Ooh, this is tough stuff. This can't mean what it says." So I know what we'll do. Let's get the experts to give their takes on it. And so there emerged from this, believe it or not, a, a school of rabbinic thought where the rabbis would offer their comments on what we would call the Torah, the Tanakh, if you will, the, the, uh, the uh, Torah, the prophets, and the writings, what we would call the Old Testament. And so uh, over time, the writings of the rabbis were gathered together into a volume called the Mishnah. And if you wanted to find out what a particular verse meant, kind of like us going on EnduringWord.com, you could read the commentaries of the rabbis. Well, the problem got to be the rabbis took it a step further. Sometimes the rabbis weren't clear uh, about, say, a comment on a particular command or what it meant to fulfill it. And so they had commentaries on the commentaries. It was a volume called the Gemara. Uh, and so by the time that got going, uh, you were like two steps removed from actually reading God's word. You'd read the expert's take on what the experts said about God's word. And, and what happened was uh, they began to out-Bible the Bible. They sat around and they said, ooh, you know, we got this commandment. Uh, mm, you're supposed to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Uh, what does that mean? What does it mean to do no labor on the Sabbath. So they went to town and they came up with at least a minimum of 32 different ways that you could violate the Sabbath that not aren't in the scripture, but are in the writings of the rabbis, you know, uh, trying to figure out how many steps you could take on the Sabbath day uh, without violating the command of working because you're traveling. Uh, how heavy a burden could you take? Uh, you Two know, tried figs. That's yeah, the, that's yeah, exactly. The, that's the what what your, your domicile would be. Like if you wanted to go on a trip, but it was the Sabbath, uh, you could walk, say, 1,500 paces, and then you could bring something from your house and put it down there and say, okay, now I can go another 1,500 paces because this is technically my domicile. And, and it got into this maddening sort of out-bibling the Bible kind of a thing. And, and so... The Sabbath was a great example of that. Believe it or not, we have actual commentaries from the rabbis as to whether it is legal to spit on the Sabbath or not. You've violated the Sabbath by spitting. And where. Now, if you spit, believe it or not, and it's, it landed on pavement, you, you're okay. You haven't violated the Sabbath. But if you spit and it landed in dust, you've made clay and you violated the Sabbath. You know, so... Uh, you know, when Jesus said uh, the, 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 that man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man, he's just going, okay, reboot. You know, that, that's about the only thing I know to do when my computer goes wacky. I just turn it off and turn it back on again. And the cable box. Uh, you know, and, and, and so uh, that, that's basically what Jesus is saying is you've got all these insane minutia that you focused on, but you've forgotten that the Sabbath is all about Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The Sabbath is all about walking humbly with your God, taking time off from the usual requirements of life just to focus in on your relationship with the Lord. But that was long gone. And uh, boy, you know, had the propriety police and the sin sniffers, uh, you know, working overtime 
to make sure that nobody violated their steel-reinforced sensibilities about uh, the Bible. So what Jesus was saying is, uh, and maybe this is the best way to define it, Talon, is uh, that it's all about uh, Micah 6.8. And if you ever get into a, a deal where some well-meaning but religious type is saying, no, you got to do this and this and this, and why don't you do this, and you need to be performing this, just go back to Micah 6.8 and say, okay, does it pass that three-way test? Is this about doing justly? Is it about loving mercy? Is it about walking humbly with my God? Or is it about appeasing people who can't be appeased? So, Thank you. Yeah, uh, as far as the chosen goes, uh, you know, I, I hear it on both sides. Some people just think it's the neatest thing since sliced bread. Other people have real qualms about the producers behind it and some of the statements that uh, the, uh, the main writers have made. Um, you know, in a sense, I think there's some criticism. Do it because it does outbible the Bible in a lot of places. Uh, you know, making you know inferences <clears throat> that you know again uh, Matthew was uh, you know again uh, on the autistic spectrum or something like that. Very modernistic overlay on the Bible. Or uh, a more blasphemous note that he was one of his consulting thoughts in how to get the Sermon on the Mount solidified, not yeah, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and, and I mean, the, the producers of it would say, we're just uh, trying to make this more relatable, more real. Uh, this isn't scripture, you know, read your Bible, but, uh, you know, this just kind of makes it more vivid. And if you're one of those people you walk away from and say, man, that really wants, makes me want to read my Bible more, then good on you. If on the other side of the coin, you're watching The Chosen, and you go, well, I did my devotions because I watched The Chosen, uh, I would highly, highly uh, recommend, uh, boy, getting your discernometer in for a tune-up because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like Prince of Egypt. I love that, that cartoon, loved it. Uh, but right at the beginning, they said, this is a cartoon, this is dramatization. You want to know the real story of the Exodus? Read the book Exodus. of Exodus. Mm-hmm. And I love that because from then on, you know, okay, we, we've got all these things going on here. Uh, but it's just entertainment. The problem is that line gets blurred a little. Yeah, and just uh, I'll make a positive recommendation. If you want a good portrayal of Jesus, in my opinion, that's a bit more biblical, um, Jefferson Moore from Kelly Filmworks, the Stranger series, they did a TV series, they did three movies, and all of them are fantastic. I would recommend that over The Chosen. Also, The Gospel of Jesus, great film, all straight from the gospel, every word. Yep. So there Thank you, you so much. We'll see you again tomorrow. Thanks for your questions. Have a wonderful evening. God bless you. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.